Aloha, this is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us on The Conversation. It is Monday, November 6th. The headlines about the conflict in Gaza are deeply felt by an Oahu teen who was in Israel during the terrorist attack. We hear his thoughts as we mark the one-month anniversary of this latest spate of violence. Bronze, the Medal of Ages, survives the Lahaina Inferno to tell the story. We learn about the art pieces found in the ashes of the Wyland Gallery after the wildfires. And more ways for those impacted by the fire to process grief and to find peace. The popular NPR program, The Hidden Brain, tackles healing in a new podcast. We'll hear what lessons listeners may be able to apply. Plus, blending science fiction with Polynesian cultures, Pacifica sci-fi writer Gina Cole shares her passion for the genre and her love of Lord of the Rings and Star Trek. the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This week marks a month since the grisly attack on an Israel music festival by the Hamas terrorist group. There were more than 245 taken hostage and now more than 1,400 are dead. The counterattack by Israel has now left more than 10,000 dead in Gaza and the violence continues. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken made a surprise visit this weekend to Israel as he calls as calls for a humanitarian ceasefire increase across the globe. This morning we talked to Marinol High School student Alex Skripitsky and his father Dimitri. Alex was in Israel a month ago, taking part in an educational exchange program that his dad learned about. The semester study at the Alexander Muss High School was cut short because of the violence. We hear first from Dimitri, who's an epidemiologist at the State Health Department and who says he wants Alexander to be a world citizen. Thanks to his parents, Alex speaks both Chinese and Russian. So it started maybe a year and a half ago when we kind of learned more about the program and we applied for the program. And we have to make sure that Marinol is okay with the program so it's because he's going to take sabbatical one semester off. And we're very blessed that, that Marinol was actually supporting of the venture, of the studies, and we made it up, make sure that the credits would be transferred from the Alexander Mass School to the Marinol School. So it worked out very nicely. Alex, tell us, I mean, how long were you there in Israel before all this happened? I was there for like four, six weeks like more six weeks there, yeah. So you were just getting into it. Yeah, I had another two months-ish to go. And so what were you thinking when you heard about the attack? I mean, the first time when I heard the attack was some bombing sounds and the air raid, air raid sirens. So, of course, I was a bit, you know, scared. But after that, I wasn't really worried because I knew, like, Alexander Moss High School would, like, do what they could to protect us. Dad, I'm sure dad and mom were probably very worried because you're across the world here. Right, of course, we were worried. But at the same time, this kind of things, I thought this kind of things happen on a regular basis. So they have a plan for this. But this time was much, very, very different. Sometimes the, the rockets will come to Israel, but, you know, Iron Dome would protect Israel. Yeah. Talk about then, you know, the process uh, of trying to figure out, okay, what do we do with these students? And, you know, because the decision had been made to then cancel the program, right, and bring the students back home. It took like a day or two to, for school to decide. An eventual decision wasn't make, wasn't make for, for safety of the children, but also the school is, has more than 200 beds, and those beds were used for refugees from the south who seen some really terrible things. So they, have, they feel safe, and the school is located north of uh, Tel Aviv, this is a rather safe place. Right. So you, you felt he was out of harm's way, but you wanted him home if, if the program was ended. Even though he's seen a lot in the, one, in the five weeks, but there's a lot more to see. But, of course, I want him to be home safe. Right. And w- was it tricky getting him out? A lot of flights initially had canceled. Right. I think during any kind of uh, crisis like this, airlines, it's, it's difficult sometimes to get the flight. But the school... Got them, got the charter, and they flew to Rome, and they spent the night in Rome. And then they flew, flew to Boston, then New York, then Honolulu. It took a good three days to get back home, 
And, you know, for kids like his age, this is adventure. Yeah. So, so yeah, uh, uh, tell us, you know, what you were thinking when you heard that the program was going to get canceled. Like, it really sucked. Everybody was, everybody was sad. Some were crying. And, like, it really sucked. Yeah, I, I mean, I you had just yeah. met these friends, right? New friends, and, and you were just getting settled. Yeah, we were so close. We, we, were, with, we were together all the time. But it's kind of sad it has to end. And so are you still in touch with them? Yeah. Because of the time zone difference, I'm not, not that much, but we are planning to meet up. Are these students all from the U.S. or are they from um, all over? So Alexander Moss High School has many programs, and I went to the semester one. There, There's all the kids from the semester program are from America, and... Yeah, but uh, the other ones from the other programs are usually from Canada or other places. We're marking a month since that attack and and you were forced to leave. What goes through your mind as you see this whole thing play out? It sucks having, like, war and not having peace. Like, terrible things are happening to Israel and, like, civilians are getting killed. Areas are being bombed. Yeah, and then Dad, and I don't know if you have friends or relatives over there on that side of the world. How are you viewing all this? I do have family on the other side of the world. I feel the situation is really sad for both ends. And of course, for Israel, there's no easy solution. And for people who live in Gaza are really suffering greatly because of Hamas. And it's very hard to find a solution, as anybody knows. But I think if... Egypt let refugees in, the situation would be much easier for people from Gaza. At least they have a place to run away. Because they're really hijacked by Hamas and the situations is difficult for them. Yeah, and, and it is hard to see because the casualty rates just keep going up and, and, and you know a lot of those folks are just innocent. Of course. Of course. War war is a very a terrible thing. It's, it's terrible for everybody. And I have family also in Ukraine who also suffered during the war. So the best thing is you can civilian both like in Ukraine or Gaza or just, just even in the inside of Israel, they just try to get away from the war zone to stay as safe as possible. And so uh, what does your family tell you in, in Ukraine about the situation there? Because I know the focus seems to be right now on you know Israel and Gaza. They, they think this whole thing was planned to get their attention away from from Ukraine. And that, that's, 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 how they, that's how they see the world. They see the whole thing is connected. Is there anything else that you want to add, Alex, just about, you know, how you're viewing the situation over there now, you know, since you, you were there and saw firsthand uh, life in Israel? I think Israel is actually doing a really good job to protect its citizens and, like, especially in the north, they're not letting any bombs get through there. I was able to share the experience with my classmates. In, in like what, a social studies class or? No, around like every other class in the first day of school, I explained like situation and all that. So it really kind of drove home the reality of what was going on over there? Yeah. I feel of course very sad and disappointed that it happened. I hope when dust settles and things go back to normal in Israel. And of course, Israel has to go through a crisis, not the first time. And maybe he can go back to Alexander Mars School and finish his semester and or just start a new one and have continue having his experience. Under the classroom is, is really good for kids because they spent most of this most of the school outside of the classroom and they explore the world, they look at historic sites. It's really good educational moment. And I'm upset of course that Alexander lost this opportunity. And did you take him there, or did he fly off uh, on his own? Uh, the, the joke is, uh, Alexander is his dual citizen, so he flew to Taiwan before he was he took a city bus. So he's he's okay to fly in things by himself. He flew to places by himself internationally. Wow. That's awesome. Since I, mean. I think 12 years old, he flew internationally. Uh, I talked with your mom, and she was just sharing with me, yeah, about your experience in China. And so you have, I think, a perspective that maybe most kids don't. Yeah, I've seen a lot of things from other cultures and have also like learned, learned a lot of Chinese. 
what do you want to do when you graduate? Any thoughts about a career? I'd go for software engineering for my career. I could also maybe use my Chinese or Russian skills for another career path. I just think you're so fortunate to have had these experiences that you could build on so much just because you have this international perspective. Yeah, I'm really thankful for my my dad for providing these opportunities. I just want him to floor, glow and become like world citizen. And of course, things not to dad, also to mom. So it takes it takes two people at least, and the grandparents. Uh, I just want him to explore the world and see things. Hawaii is a wonderful place. It's been home for me for more than 25 years. But the world is big, and everybody looks for a place for themselves in this big world, wherever it is. Thank you both for carving out some time just to talk about this whole situation because uh, it's on everybody's minds. But thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Shalom. And that was Marinol sophomore Alexander Kropitsky and his father, Dmitri, talking about the latest conflict in the Middle East. Alex was forced to cut short a semester of study in Israel because of the violence. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at mobi.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Hirsch Wilson, author of Dog Lessons, Learning the Important Stuff from Our Best Friends. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the lessons dogs teach us. Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Stadia Capital Group, a Hawaii-based investment firm committed to community and supporting charitable organizations. Learn more about its new legacy gifting fund at stadiacapitalgroup.com. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai. Olana, o Maui, o Kaholabe, o Hawaii. Today we're rooting through the backyard fauna in search of an organic, or rather an organism, endemic to our island. Hawaii is renowned for its diversity of native insects. There are over 5,800 known species, with 95% of them native. Among them is a creature that is the largest in the dragonfly family in the U.S. They feed on all aquatic insects. In fact, their larvae can eat small shrimp, but they also like to feed on flying insects like mosquitoes. This flying predator catches its prey in the air and eats it on the fly. And speaking of flying, they're amazing at it. They can move forward, backward, hover in place, and make sharp turns. It's frequently found in higher elevations of the state, although the adults can sometimes be found close to sea level. Ancient Hawaiians believed that this insect descended from the ant. For today's Backyard Quiz, do you know its name? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for HPR comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits committed to transitioning families from homelessness into homes, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NairitHawaii.com. Mike Johnson was a little-known congressman from Louisiana. He's now Speaker of the House and one of the most powerful politicians in the country. The challenge before us is great, but the time for action is now, and I will not let you down. 
how this hard-right congressman came out on top and what his ascendancy says about the GOP now. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for HPR comes from UH Presents and East-West Center Arts. Mahani Teave, Rapa Nui classical pianist, performs November 12th at UH Manoa Orvis Auditorium. Tickets at outreach.hawaii.edu slash events. Like a phoenix, out of ashes they rise. We're talking about bronze statues, art pieces from the Wyland Gallery in Lahaina that burned during the recent fires. HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio here to talk about what was found. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I thought this was a really interesting story. And it gets even more interesting. So as... Most of Front Street buildings are gone, including the Weiland Galleries, and a lot of these remnants have toppled into the ocean and the shore break. And what was even more interesting from that is first responders were in search of survivors. There is this one fire chief from Orange County, California, who saw this whale sticking out of the rubble in the shore break of the ocean. And it was basically this bronze sculpture of a whale emerging from the ocean. This is a signature from Robert Weiland, or also known as uh, Weiland, who's this widely known uh, muralist, and also he's uh, delved into other crafts such as bronze sculptures. Yeah, but the fact that it survived, wow, it's amazing. It really is a testament to this art form for bronze sculptures, and I spoke with Jock Arbor. He's the director of Weiland Galleries on Maui, and he was very happy to hear that these sculptures were okay. It's a testament to that type of art. It's a very expensive process. It's called the lost wax process. There's a a few different ways to make a bronze. This is just the most labor intensive, cost intensive, and it's what the Romans invented. So it's a 2000 year old process, but it's kind of the standard for a bronze. So it's a testament to that, um, that art form, you know, to create something that can last, you know, outdoors in the snow and the heat and clearly through fire. Unless it gets above 2,000 degrees, the bronze won't melt. So how how many statues did they find? They found 23. Wow. And it's not, they're not just only statues or sculptures from Weiland. There were actually other artists as well. Um, I believe it was uh, Nano Lopez uh, that they also found, and it was a cat sculpture. And Nano Lopez, after doing more research, he's a Colombian artist. And Many of these um, artists that were featured in Wyland Gallery is also a testament to how selective Wyland is and also getting these bronze sculptures in. And they're actually going to be putting these sculptures up for auction soon. But right now, Wyland is in Cuba doing a mural painting somewhere over there, and he'll be back soon. But after talking to Jock and him explaining the process, um, it is going to take a while, but they do plan on some type of auction with a portion of the, the profit to go to um, any recovery efforts in Lahaina. But um, when they when they were uh, retrieving these sculptures, it, it was interesting because I asked them how how many and how much do these things weigh? It's 400 pounds. So they had the emergency responders had to take a crane and lift some of these sculptures up from the ocean. Goodness. Um, and I thought it was symbolic that it was the whale that was first spotted um, to kind of just retrieve that. But I've seen photos. There was an elephant, a cat, dolphins, sharks, all these bronze sculptures that survived this pro- uh, the fire. But... Um, you know, there, since there are plans uh, for these um, auctions, um, some of the money would go to efforts on Maui, and Wyland has already raised $50,000 to go to these recovery efforts. You know, I'm making sure that I, I'm not premature with offering something that might not be safe to send to someone if it's a sculpture that, because some of these big sculptures were functional tables, and the glass is gone because it either melted or, you know, cracked and broke and shattered to a million pieces. But they can easily have a new sheet of glass placed on them. But we would have to, with those specific sculptures, make sure they're correct and level. And if someone were to place something heavy on it, 
they're structurally functional. So the director in me wants to just get back to work and, and put together a great show and a Zoom thing and have Wyland fly out here again and set up a camera and go through the warehouse individually. But it's just going to take a little bit of time. But we're working on that. And to kind of dive in more into what these sculptures look like, some of them were painted. And when the fire happened, even though these sculptures have survived, the base of the sculpture is melted off. So imagine having a 400-pound sculpture in, in your home and then it accidentally tips over. Right. You need a strong foundation. <laughs> exactly. And uh, what Wyland and Jacques were thinking about was maybe either keeping the sculpture as it is to kind of symbolize um, what the sculpture has been through, through the Lahaina fire, or there's discussions of actually repainting the sculpture or making half of it painted or half charred. That's what they told me, just to kind of keep that, that history that the sculpture has been through. Um, I've actually never, full disclosure, I've never been to Lahaina except for the di- the about maybe a month after the fire. So unfortunately, I didn't get to see what Lahaina's front street looked like. Um, I know you have, actually. Yeah, I mean, I remember doing stories with Wyland when he you know, was starting out here on Oahu with his murals, the Wailing Wall, the famous Wailing Wall uh, in Waikiki. Uh, but yeah, he's just branched out and you know has these galleries all over. I've actually learned a lot from doing this story. And even talking to one of the longtime clients, she's uh, she was in the story that aired today. Her name is Jamie Sue Sue West. She's been a longtime client, and she's a collector of art, including um, Wyland's art. She actually has her eye on that cat statue from Nano Lopez. But the reason why she wants that cat statue because she was volunteering with the uh, Maui Humane Society and helping these cats. And we know that some of the animals that were lost in the fire, most that survived were actually cats. So she wanted that symbol. Um, She's kind of still deciding whether or not she wants it repainted, but that's gonna be up to the artist himself to decide that. But she definitely wants it. So far she has 16 um, collections of art pieces in her home. And I also found out in order for you to be a collector, you have to have five art pieces. <laughs> I wish I would have known that because then I would have been a collector of Beanie Babies. Oh, when there I was you younger. go. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I can see, yeah, the cat uh, concept, nine lives, right? Just kind of uh, surviving, you know, through this terrible disaster. Exactly. And also talking to Jamie Sue West on kind of descri- helping me describe to readers on what the Wyland Galleries looked like on Lahaina. She remembers that it was a very vibrant place. It was a family tradition for her to always go there and at least view the um, Wyland Galleries. And also she remembers Jacques playing his guitar with other artists. So, um, I mean, I kind of wish that I was there to at least witness that and experience that for myself to help paint the story. But I'm glad I got to talk to all these other folks to really help me understand this story and um, get this out to the readers. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, and our listeners, you know, just who have been there uh, and are familiar with the setup on on uh, Front Street and, and Lahaina Town. It's a big loss. It's a big loss. And another thing that was actually recovered since we're on the topic of bronze um, on Lahaina Gallery's front street, there was this oval plaque that said Wyland Galleries that was lost, and that meant a lot to Jock and Wyland and the rest of the folks who worked at Wyland Galleries. So someone who's not a first responder um, retrieved that and gave it back to Jock, and Jock said it's basically the symbol of the gallery's future moving forward. If you're on the island, if you're on Oahu, you can stop in the Haleiwa Gallery, or the Waikiki Gallery and find out when Wyland is going to be there. He does shows generally in the December, January months here on the islands. But um, I guess a message, if you are coming to Maui, we don't have a location set up now, but all that stuff at the warehouse. Folks that are interested in, uh, in these pieces can just contact them. For sure. All right. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking to HPR's Cassie Ordonio. You can check out her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Partners at Honolulu Civil Beat has to do with child care in Maui following the wildfires. Reporter Megan Tagami joins us today. Hi, Megan. 
Hi, good morning. Yeah, so th- this is a critical need there uh, in Lahaina, and y- your story talks about, you know, those facilities that were lost in the fire. Right. Um, so it's estimated that Lahaina lost around 250 child care, licensed child care seats during the fire. But even before the fires, um, I learned that Lahaina was facing a child care shortage. So the fires just really exacerbated um, a problem that was already there. Yeah. And so if, if these facilities are burned, you know, there are people without jobs and families without child care. Right. Exactly. So a lot of facilities have been burned or um, damaged in some ways from the fires and the heavy winds. And right now, um, there's only around two preschool programs that are open and available, but they're operating at full capacity. And it sounds like they were, um, you know, already kind of reaching full capacity at the start of the year, even before the fire. So like you said, as parents are going back to work or trying to rebuild, um, they're looking for a place to put their children, but there just really aren't too many places available right now. And the state had launched this Kiki Ready program where they were trying to create more preschool spaces uh, and they had, you know, renovations planned and, and Maui was identified as a high need area. Yes, exactly. Um, You know, I spoke to Lieutenant Governor Luke, and she said that even before the fires, um, the Ready Kiki Initiative had um, identified West Maui as a high-need area for child care. Um, But now, you know, after the fires and after this need was um, made even greater, then they're looking to maybe put public pre-K facilities on Princess Nahiena's campus, which is in Lahaina and um, would be able to serve more families. Yeah, so hopefully they can fast track that. I mean, I know when we talked to DOE officials, you know, we were concerned about the the big push for reconstruction, right, rebuilding, and whether that would affect the preschool Kiki Ready program. And uh, I know the officials were saying, oh, you know, not as far as they know at this point, but it could still be affected down the road. Right, exactly. And um, yeah, it sounds like parents and families are just really trying to find a place that's, of course, safe for their kids, but also, um, you know, somewhere that's in close physical proximity to them. I talked with some preschool providers and some parents, and they said that, you know, at this point, they're really not comfortable sending their kids maybe across the island um, to a different child care provider that is open. So they're really looking for local options in Lahaina um, that, you, you know, that they feel safe sending their children to right now. And you talked to Kamaina Kids, which was offering free child care um, right after the um, fires. Yes, exactly. Um, Kamaina Kids, for about a month after the fires, was offering um, free child care to um, families. And it was, it sounded like a drop-in program at their um, um, at their Kahului location, um, the, the director said the program ended once they were able to kind of place remaining families in more permanent child care options. But I talked to one parent and she said it was just a really valuable resource um, for her family as they were trying to, you know, figure out so many other things going on in their life at the time immediately after the fires. Yeah, and so much uncertainty. You know, so many families still in hotel rooms trying to find, you know, more stable housing. So, yeah, everybody's just in a flux. And, you know, we've got the holidays coming up, so it's just even more stressful. Yes, exactly. And, um, you know, I talked to Maui Economic Opportunity, which operates the Head Start program, um, also on Princess Nahiena Elementary's campus, and they're hoping that their, um, you know, the Head Start program will be up and running by um, January of 2024, if not earlier. So some providers are definitely trying to reopen and find a way to rebuild, but of course for some facilities and some providers that completely lost their classrooms to the fire, the process might be a lot longer for them. Yeah, very stressful. But our hearts go out uh, to those families because it it is tough to try and juggle all this. But thank you so much, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And we've been talking with reporter Megan Tagami about the snapshot of preschool classes in Maui following the wildfire some three months ago. You can read her story at civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. Open enrollment. Are you over 65? And if you are, are you satisfied with your Medicare plan? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll replay a show demystifying the ins and outs of Medicare and how you can choose the plan that's right for you. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs including finance, information systems, marketing, and more. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. radio listeners may be familiar with the program Hidden Brain, which airs on HPR1 on Thursday evenings. This month, it kicked off its podcast Healing 2.0, focused on the nature of loss and the grieving process. With people working through loss and trauma on Maui and with the stress of the holiday season upon us, HPR's Russell Subiano was curious about what we could learn. He got the chance to talk to Hidden Brain host Shankar Vedantam about the new series. After what our friends and family experienced on Maui recently, this podcast seems to be coming at a time where many people in Hawaii could use more avenues for processing loss and grief. Can you talk about some of the topics that you cover in your podcast? Absolutely. So in some ways, the inspiration for this series, Healing 2.0, is that when we look out at the world, um, not just in Maui and not just in Hawaii, but really around the world, it really seems as if there is so much suffering and pain out there. Um, I often feel that after I listen to the news every day, my heart feels heavy. Um, and it's also the time of year, I think, when many people are obviously celebrating with friends and family. But they're also reminded of, you know, celebrations in years past and maybe people who are no longer at the table with them. So it's a bittersweet moment for many people. So the series is not looking specifically at individual traumatic events that have happened around the world or even in the lives of people, but it's looking at the themes that connect these different ideas together, these different events together. And it's really asking the question, what does psychological science and psychological research have to offer people so that they can come through difficult times with more serenity, come through difficult times with, with a better sense of balance and well-being? That's the idea of the series. Also, I know that the holidays are usually a celebratory time, but for some, it can be a particularly stressful time. Yeah. Many people do struggle during the holiday season. Yes. Did that factor into the reasons behind producing the podcast and releasing it this month? Absolutely. Uh, we thought that this would actually be a useful thing to offer, you know, in the month of November and going into early December. Uh, and this is not to say that everyone experiences the holidays in this fashion, but I think there are a subset of people for whom the holidays are a bittersweet moment. And, and we thought this would be especially a good time to share some of these insights uh, in, our, in our zeal and our aim to help people thrive. Your program, The Hidden Brain, has a knack for finding the stories between the stories, for, for lack of a better description, and bringing to the surface many things that we think about but don't always express or talk about. I know that when I listen, there are plenty of times where I say to myself, man, I was just thinking about that the other day. <laughs> where does that ability come from, and how were you and your team able to apply it to an age-old topic like healing? Yeah, well, that's a, it's a very kind question, Russell, and I appreciate the, the question and the sentiment behind it. Thank you for that. You know, I, I think what we're trying to do every week on the show is we're trying to grapple with questions that are the questions that are in all of our lives. Uh, I think the, 
the 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 material that hidden brain is is exploring every week in fact is the material that animates the lives of all the people who work on the show uh, so i think in some ways it's it's not surprising that as you listen to the show you're likely to come by things that you say well this occurred to me you know last week or this happened to my friend last month i, I think we're trying to play with those ideas uh, we're trying to notice the things that happen to us in our lives and asking how can we actually bring this to life in an, in an episode um, I do think that what we're trying to do here with the healing uh, series is we're trying to say that there are a number of ways in which people are hurting. This can be the result of interpersonal hurt. They can be the result of illness or they can be the result of death or grief. But there are common ideas that connect all these different things together. And by understanding some of those common ideas, we can give people who are going through a variety of different challenges some tools and ideas on how to thrive and live better lives. And I, I'm always impressed with the depth at which you and your team are able to dive into the topics that you talk about in the work for this podcast. What was the most surprising or, or coolest thing that you learned about healing or the other topics that you covered in the podcast episodes? So I would say that every episode in this five-episode uh, series in some ways has an insight that I think is really interesting and powerful. Uh, let me tell you about the, the first episode in the series. I'm not sure necessarily I would label it as the my favorite idea or the most important idea, but I think it's a wonderful and really provocative and interesting idea. Uh, this uh, this uh, show is called Change Your Story, Change Your Life. And the idea behind it is that as we look at our lives, all of us think about our lives as if we are are experiencing our lives or observing our lives, we think that our lives happen to us. So it's almost like we're sitting in a theater and we're watching a play unfold and the play is our life. And while it is the case that we are in some ways the audience for our lives, it's also the case that I think we are the author of our own lives. And we play sort of an authorial role in shaping not just our lives, but how we tell the story of our lives. And uh, the first episode looks at the idea that if you think about a life having a series of ups and downs, uh, and if you think about your entire life being a book, uh, a novel, for example, you have to construct chapters and decide where you're starting each chapter and ending each chapter. And it turns out where you put the chapter breaks in your life plays a profound role in your happiness and well-being. So if you're telling stories of your life, if the chapters of your life are constructed around the idea that something started out very positively or very happily and then ended very negatively. So for example, you 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 met someone, you fell in love, you got married, you were very happy, but then things fell apart, you know, you got divorced, you got separated, you lost a loved one. That's a story that psychologists call a contamination sequence where something starts out very positive and ends very negative. But because all our lives have ups and downs, you can also construct the chapters differently so that you're starting out with things that might be more negative. And you say something bad happened to me. There was a setback that happened to me. And you end the chapter by saying, here's what I learned from it, or here's how I came out the other side feeling better about myself, or here's what, here's something that, that a, a new avenue that opened up to me as a result of one door, one door closing. Psychologists call those kinds of stories redemption sequences. And, and the simple idea here, which is also, I think, a very profound idea is that if we construct our lives and the chapters of our lives so that we're telling more redemption sequences and fewer contamination sequences, we are likely to feel happier about our lives, feel better adjusted and experience more well-being. I find that idea fascinating. As do I. Where can our audience find the Healing 2.0 podcast? Well, the Healing 2.0 podcast is going to be on the Hidden Brain podcast feed. It's available wherever people get the, their podcasts, any of the podcast platforms. It's also available widely on our public radio show, uh, including on Hawaii Public Radio. Uh, and people can listen on the radio and or the podcast or, or both. Shankar, thanks so much for your time this morning. So stoked I got to talk to you. Thank you so much, Russell. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. That was Shankar Vedantam, host of The Hidden Brain, which airs on HBR Thursdays at 7 p.m. He was talking to HBR's Russell Subiono. The first episode of the Healing 2.0 podcast is available now. Episode 2 will be released on Thursday. We'll have a link to it on the conversation page of our website later today.
And now it's time for the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier we asked you how much you knew about Hawaii's insects. We went looking for the largest and fastest flying insect in the state. If you were thinking the B-52 bomber cockroach, well, you know, the one that likes bathtub drains and kitchen sinks, well, that's not it. The critter we're talking about is the giant Hawaiian dragonfly, or pinau, which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Uh, these dragonflies are born underwater. They're found near waterfalls, taro patches, ponds, and other pools of water in the Hawaiian rainforest. It has two pairs of wings that can reach up to seven inches tip to tip. This accomplished flyer can speed along at up to 19 miles per hour, but please don't capture one. They're endangered largely because of loss of habitat caused by water diversion and development. And our winner today, Lopaka of the Kui Helani Ohana. And that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Gina Cole is a science fiction writer from New Zealand. She's currently in residence at the University of Hawaii as a Fulbright creative writing scholar. Uh, she's the author of two books, uh, Naviro and Black Ice Matter. Cole is of Fijian descent. She grew up in remote places as her father was a lighthouse keeper. Before launching her writing career, she was a lawyer for 27 years. Cole talked to the conversation Stephanie Hahn about her love of Lord of the Rings and Star Trek. She also shares how science fiction rooted in Pacific cultures can play a part in our future. I started writing when I was four years old because my father was a, uh, a lighthouse keeper and we lived in some very remote places where there were no schools and not many other children and so my mother taught me how to read and write by correspondence school. I would order these big boxes of books that would come in on a truck. So I always had lots of books even though I couldn't read very well or at all really at the age of four I used to play with these books as artifacts and I think that had a really big influence on me um, and yeah fast forward to my adult years I, I was a lawyer for 27 years and during that period I, I always wrote but I always thought of it as a hobby or something I did on the side I tried to do a PhD and be a full-time lawyer for one year and it didn't work. I had to make a choice between writing and the law. You had mentioned briefly jumping off the cliff and becoming an author. Went, oh, uh, right. Yeah, yes. yeah this is yeah, really so, interesting to me. <laughs> <laughs> so since I stopped working as a lawyer, I also picked up work as um, a background extra, a screen a screen background extra um, and the reason I got into that is to do with science fiction as well because I love Lord of the Rings and of course Lord of the Rings was being filmed in New Zealand and so I wanted to be an extra in the Lord of the Rings and so I signed up to an agency and I wanted to be an orc so I didn't know how to become an orc so when I, I got this work as a farmer um, as an, to, to be an extra acting as a farmer in the background and I asked the people who were orcs how, how did they become orcs <laughs> and how do I become an orc and they told me one of them told me well first of all you have to go to the New Zealand stage and screen combat school and you have to learn how uh, some combat skills and then if you're really really serious you have to go to stunt school so me and a friend who was also a village extra we both went to the New Zealand stage and screen combat school and we learned things like sword fighting knife fighting um, hand-to-hand -hand combat for the screen and we also did a class called uh, stunt conditioning which was taught by a uh, a man who who was a black belt in taekwondo and we were learning all sorts of um, you know physical moves for the body like forward rolls and for how you fall and and how you how you fight and he said to us that if we were really serious about being uh, stunties or even action extras 
that we should do a, a martial art. So me and my friend both signed up to do Taekwondo. And and I've been learning Taekwondo ever since. And I've, I've even uh, joined up to a Taekwondo club here in um, Honolulu for the time that I've been here. <laughs> That's great. In other words, we can expect to see you um, doing sword combat in potentially a New Zealand movie. I'd love that. Yes. That would be <laughs> awesome. Maybe that. when your own film is done, maybe when they make your book, you yeah. could be one of the extras. I could, yeah. <laughs> can you describe a little bit about your ethnic heritage and how you came to New Zealand? I believe you're Fijian, correct? My my mother is Fijian and my father is he's half Scottish and half Welsh. My father's father, my, my paternal grandfather, was the um, city architect for Suva, Fiji, in the 50s. And my father came out from England to visit his father in Fiji, and that's when he met my mother. And then my parents moved from Fiji to New Zealand in 1959. And that's where I was born and where I grew up and where I've lived for my whole life. How do you identify? I identify as Fijian. I'm a New Zealander, of course I have a New Zealand passport, but I don't identify as a New Zealander so much because, you know, New Zealand has indigenous people, Māori people, and I'm, I kind of see myself as a, an indigenous settler or a second generation immigrant. And I don't identify with my Scottish or Welsh heritage because I, I just don't identify with that um, Northern European here. Although I, I acknowledge my Celtic uh, heritage, I don't identify with that Northern European part of me. I was born and I've been raised in the Pacific. Fiji, I would say, is my spiritual home uh, because I've never lived there, but I've been back there many times and I've still got lots of relations there. And I identify very much with Fiji. The second book is set in the Pacific, but science fiction. Now tell me, how do these two things converge? Yeah, well, I wrote the second book, Navero, while I was writing my PhD. Um, it was a creative component of my PhD. And I've always been a science fiction nerd. I grew up in the 1970s watching a lot of science fiction on television. My favorite program was Star Trek because of Lieutenant Uhura and uh, Nichelle Nichols, who played her. And Nichelle Nichols, Lieutenant Uhura, was a communications officer on the Starship Enterprise, and she was always in dialogue with cap the captain. It wasn't unusual for me to see a black woman and a white man in conversation because my mother is Fijian and my father is white. But I didn't see any woman of color anywhere else on television in New Zealand in the 1970s or anywhere else in cultural production for that matter. And so Lieutenant Uhura and Nichelle Nichols made a big impression on me and I've loved science fiction ever since. And so when I came to write my PhD, I decided to write about science fiction and I wanted to find out about science fiction written by indigenous Pacific writers. And what I found is that there isn't much science fiction written by indigenous Pacific writers uh, and even less science fiction set in space. So I wanted to change that and I wanted to write a book set in the Pacific and featuring Pacific characters and Pacific culture and Pacific values and principles. That's why I wrote um, Navero, which is all of those things, I think. That's what I call Pacifica Futurism. Those are the elements of Pacifica Futurism. How is Pacifica Futurism different? In other words, what kind of answers and questions are posed that you think are different because they are posed by people of the Pacific about our future in this context? I looked at our stories, our ancient stories, and one particular figure from our past who is some people say myth or legend but I prefer to say oral, oral stories or oral history 
and she is included as one of the the characters i also included a lot to do with my research on uh, wayfinding navigation which is a traditional practice of my ancestors for navigating across the pacific ocean using traditionally built canoes or waka we call them or wanga in fijian and using the pacific environment and the stars and the moon and the sun as a means of navigating across the ocean and i also looked at pacific principles there's a principle known as the VAR, V-A. And the VAR has been defined by Albert Went, who's a Samoan writer, as the space between. And this can be a space between two people, or it can be a space between two islands, or a space between two planets. And in Pacific culture, this, this VAR is not empty space. It's a space of connection, and it needs to be nurtured and looked after. Um, and also I looked at some of the writings of um, Epeli Hoofa, who's a Tongan academic and a writer, who talked about the Pacific as being a sea of islands, which has a, a feeling of expansiveness as opposed to the um, colonial view of the Pacific as being islands in a far-flung sea, which has a, a feeling of remoteness and disconnection. Uh, what I tried to do anyway was, was to bring all of those kinds of principles and values, bring them together in um, a science fiction way and take them all up into space, into a, a sea of, a, a galaxy of islands or a universe of islands or an, a sky of islands. Um, where both realms, space and the Pacific Ocean are connected in the VAR the, the way I view what happened to indigenous people in the Pacific is that colonialism was our apocalypse. So we are living in a post-apocalyptic world anyway. That is where I start from in terms of how I write about the future. Moving on from that into something better. After the apocalypse, where, what will happen then? In order to create story, we have to imagine a narrative. And it's about imagining stories in the future and bringing some critical thinking and some kind of fun element to the writing. Oh, that was Gina Cole, writer of Pacifica Futurism, which centers on Pacific cultures. She was talking to HBR Stephanie Hahn. Earlier this year, Cole was appointed a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit for her contribution to literature. Well, that's it for today. Tomorrow, we hear about the science behind the dry docking process and the broad spectrum of jobs it creates in harbors. We mark the three-month anniversary of the Maui wildfires this week. Call our talkback line at 808-792-8217 with your favorite Lahaina memory. You can find the conversation segments on our website or wherever you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. <laughs>